Hey, this is Eric, and you're listening to the Story Church Podcast. Our podcast features audio from Sunday mornings at Story Church in Peru, Indiana, a community on the mission of connecting people's story to God's story. If you'd like to connect with us further, check out storyperu.com. Our hope is that today's episode helps you take your next step on your faith journey. I'm excited that we're wrapping up this series today, but I've been really excited and looking forward to doing this series just in the life of our church. Uh, even like a year ago or even a little over a year ago when we were talking about launching Story Church, uh, a series like this was on my mind that uh, we should talk about how to actually engage with the Bible, to actually understand the story of the Bible rather than just some of the verses and stories in the Bible. Um, so I've been really excited to do this. And to be honest with you, I've also been kind of nervous to do it. Uh, because it's really tricky to talk about. And uh, like I actually rescheduled this series a couple of times. If you really pay attention, you may have even heard me say like a year and a half ago, like we're going to do it in the spring. And then the spring happened. And you're like, where was it? So uh, I kept moving it because um, to be honest, like these topics, uh, it's really touchy. Like the Bible is something we hold sacred. It's something uh, that's central in so many ways to our faith. And so as you talk about the story of it and how we engage with it and what it means to live faithful to it, uh, you can bump into some strong opinions. So I was a little bit of a chicken and I put it off for that. Uh, and the other reason is like this series, if you've just been joining us and you're kind of new here, it feels a little different uh, than some of our other teaching series. It might be a little more technical uh, or Bible nerdy or history nerdy than some of them, which some of that is just who and how I am. Uh, but it's also just really important for us. And um, throughout the series, here's what we've said all along the way. It's that many of us know Bible stories. Like I just said, maybe you grew up in church singing about the B-I-B-L-E and it's the book for you and you learned all those stories in Sunday school growing up uh, and maybe that's you. Even if you didn't grow up in church, I would imagine along the way, uh, maybe you heard some Bible stories or you're familiar with some of those concepts. I mean, they've made movies out of Bible stories. They're just kind of culturally uh, a part uh, of where we live. And uh, in fact, some of you, maybe you're here and you grew up in church and you heard Bible stories, but then as you continued to grow up, uh, as you got older, you kind of walked away from the Bible because it seemed like as you grew up, it didn't grow up with you and it didn't really connect with the life that you were living or, or didn't make sense with uh, science that you were learning or the things that you were taught in school. And so as you grew up, you grew out of your faith. And, and that's one reason we're talking about this because we believe it's possible to have a grown-up faith where we keep our brains turned on and we engage with Scripture on Scripture's own terms. And so what we've said is that even though a lot of us know Bible stories, uh, very few of us actually know the story of the Bible. Very few of us actually know the story of how we got the Bible and why that's significant. But what we said is that understanding how we got the Bible is almost as important as understanding the stories in the Bible. Understanding the story of the Bible is almost as important as understanding what's in it because the backstory to all of it actually sheds light and gives context to the stories contained within it. And so throughout the series, uh, part of the challenge that we've acknowledged is that the way that we got our Bibles is not the way that the world got the Bible. The way that we got our Bibles, if you're like me and you grew up in church, uh, you were maybe handed a Bible. For me, it was at a confirmation class. Uh, if you ever went through that, it's like a class where you learn what Christians are at that church specifically, uh, what you believe. And, and at that, I was handed my Bible and it was all chaptered and versed and mapped and wrapped and it had my name on the front of it and it was just all ready for me to go. But in this series, we've talked about how the world got the Bible in a dramatically different way. That it wasn't all bound together in a leather book and just handed to us out of the clouds or something like that. Uh, but rather, the story or the journey of how this book or this library of books 
came to be is as important as what's in the book itself. So one last time, since we're here on the last week, to catch you up with where we've been in the series so far, we said on week one that the Bible or the story of the Bible doesn't actually begin in Genesis. It doesn't actually begin in the beginning, but rather the story of the Bible begins on Easter, on Easter Sunday, because the reason that we have a Bible is because Jesus' first century followers discovered that the tomb was empty. And initially they assumed that somebody had stolen the body because nobody assumed a resurrection because as we know in our everyday lives, that's not typically what happens. Uh, But eventually they discovered later on that same day, the women who were there and some of Jesus' closest male followers, they actually saw Jesus. And then as the story went on, suddenly there were more and more Jesus sightings happening all around Jerusalem in the very city where he had been arrested and crucified just days earlier. And so once Jesus rose from the dead and people started having these encounters with the risen, the resurrected Jesus, suddenly people became very, very interested in the story of Jesus. The story of Jesus became very, very important to them. And if there had been no resurrection, there would be no Bible because the story of Jesus wouldn't be significant if he was just another failed first century revolutionary. He would have been another wannabe Messiah, another rabbi who made extraordinary claims and maybe could perform some magic tricks, but eventually was silenced by Rome, just like so many others had done in the past. But because Jesus rose from the dead, because this movement known as the church started moving, there was this extraordinary interest in the life of Jesus. And so where the Bible begins, as far as text on paper, uh, is a few years later, as word about Jesus had spread, eventually the apostles, the people who followed Jesus closely and led the church movement, realized we need to document the life of Jesus. We can't just have our stories that we pass around, but we need to actually uh, document the life of Jesus. And so we got these documents that did just that. In week one, we told you they're found in the Bible as the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these eyewitness accounts of Jesus's life. And they were written to specific audiences for specific purposes. But uh, as the story continues, we said that eventually the message of Jesus and the church community expanded beyond the region of Judea. It expanded outside of just the Jewish people, and before long, Gentiles or non-Jewish people began to also embrace the message of Jesus. And as these non-Jewish people embraced the message of Jesus, the Jewish rabbi, then suddenly there was this transition in the story. Because when Gentiles became enamored with Jesus, they also became enamored with the sacred text that told of Jesus' coming. They started looking uh, at what we would call maybe the Hebrew Bible, or or eventually we call it the Old Testament. But in their day, uh, these texts were known as the Law and the Prophets. If you've ever read one of the Gospels, maybe you heard Jesus say, you've heard it said in the Law and the Prophets. That's what he's referring to, is Jewish uh, Hebrew scripture in the day. And people in the first century referred to it in that way. So the early church got very interested in this book, in the Hebrew scriptures, in the Law and the Prophets, not because they were particularly interested in Judaism or the practices of Jewish faith, but rather because they were interested in Jesus. And and when they looked to these scriptures, they discovered that that story was the backstory to Jesus' story. And and, and so eventually what happened is the church, the Christian church, embraced the Hebrew Bible, the law and the prophets, as sacred scripture, but they didn't embrace it as Jewish scripture, but rather in the first century, in the second century, and especially by the time you get to the third century in the church, they eventually embraced the Hebrew Bible as Christian scripture, the law and the prophets 
uh, weren't viewed through a Jewish lens in the Christian church, but rather they became a part of Christian scripture. And so towards the beginning of the second century, uh, the Hebrew Bible or the Law and the Prophets started being used in Christian worship services. They would read from the text and talk about Jesus. And eventually uh, they gave it a new name. They started to call it the Old Covenant, which we're going to talk about why uh, a little more today. But uh, eventually it came known to us through a Latin term, and we know it today in the front half of the Bible as the Old Testament. But remember, here's where we left things off last week. At this point, there is still no the Bible. There's still no chapter and verse and bound collection of all these documents. There was the Hebrew text that was now being considered a Christian text uh, by the church, which of course was very offensive to the ancient Jewish communities of that day, because like, you can't just take our text and make it yours. That's not how it works. So there was those texts. Uh, there were those documents that hadn't yet been titled, but these documents documenting the life of Jesus that we now know as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then in addition to that, there was a famous church planter who began writing letters to the churches and the people in the churches that he helped plant all around the Mediterranean basin. And that's where we're going to turn our attention today. Uh, he was this church planter that we know today as the Apostle Paul. He's a hugely influential person. And when the Apostle Paul stepped onto the pages of human history, his name was actually Saul of Tarsus. And the reason Paul or Saul had two names is because he had this dual citizenship. Uh, Paul uh, was a Hebrew man. He was a Pharisee, actually. He knew the law and the prophets very well. And his Hebrew name was Saul of Tarsus. But he was also a Roman citizen. And so he had a Roman name, which was Paul. And so the reason today that we know the Apostle Paul is Paul rather than Saul is because when he transitioned from the role of being the Pharisee, studying the Jewish texts and immersed in the Jewish law, to becoming a church planter, a Christian church planter in the Gentile world, he started using his Roman name, Paul, as he was connecting with people throughout the Roman Empire. And the Apostle Paul is incredibly famous. Uh, I mean, he uh, is one of the most influential people in human history in so many ways. In fact, if you've read any of the New Testament, you've probably read the Apostle Paul at some point along the way. And it is not an exaggeration. Like even in secular academic circles, it's not an exaggeration to say that the writings and the letters of the Apostle Paul shaped Western civilization as we know it. Even people who don't believe the claims or don't believe in Jesus like Paul believed in Jesus, they would say that Paul and his writings shaped the worldview and the mindset of Western civilization all along the way. And so I'm imagining uh, if Paul had a Twitter account, this is what his bio would look like. Uh, he's the Apostle Paul, the colossal apostle, <laughs> because uh, all, of, all of the apostles of Jesus, all of the early followers of Jesus, Paul did more than any of them. In fact, it could be argued that Paul had more influence throughout the Christian church in the early days than all of the other apostles combined because they all kind of stayed put initially, at least, in the region of Judea. But Paul's the one who started spreading out the message and spreading it throughout the Mediterranean world. And uh, I love, uh, go ahead and throw that back up. There's more good stuff in there, I believe. Uh, he tagged his location as uh, somewhere in the Mediterranean basin, I think. You have that Twitter thing. All right, I believe you. There he is. Yeah, wandering the Mediterranean Rim. And then my favorite thing, I don't, I, with like three following, I don't know, I need to figure that out. But my favorite thing is his URL. Was Saul, got the call, now Paul.com. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we might think of Paul in this way. Paul's incredibly influential. But if Paul were actually here today and he saw this bio, I think he would disagree with it out of the gate because here is what Paul actually said about himself, as it's recorded in his letter to the Corinthian church, uh, Paul says, 
I am the least of the apostles, and I don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And the amazing thing about Paul, the apostle Paul, is that he was first known as a person who decided that he was going to put the church out of business altogether. He was trying to stop the Jesus movement initially, and it was called in those days a few different things. The early church was known as the Nazarene sect because Jesus was from Nazareth, and it was like this offshoot of Judaism as they viewed it, this, this kind of weird sect that was going its own way. Uh, they actually called it the way. Uh, in fact, the early church called themselves the way because they were trying to practice a unique way of living in the world. But from uh, the ancient Jews' perspective in the first century as Christianity is emerging, uh, they viewed these first century Jesus followers as people who had the audacity to try and hijack and take their Jewish scripture and make it say things that they never intended for it to mean. They, they were seeing a story in it that they thought, no, 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 that's crazy. It would be like if somebody took our Bible today and started telling a different story through it. They were upset about it. And so the Apostle Paul, who was a Pharisee, which meant he knew the Old Testament or the law and the prophets inside and out, he decided to single-handedly start to put the church out of business because they were robbing from the Jewish tradition and they were robbing from the value of what happened in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And so basically what happens is the high priest uh, essentially deputized Paul to go anywhere he wanted to in the region of Judea and in Galilee and to arrest Jewish people who had embraced Christianity, or as they called it, the way. And he himself, in the book of Acts, says that he was responsible for several or for many Jewish Christians losing their life. Paul goes on to admit that for others, uh, he tortured people or he pressured them in to blaspheming the name of Jesus, saying they didn't actually believe in Jesus and recanting their faith. And so what that means is for his entire life, the apostle Paul carried the weight of the guilt of having been the one who started persecuting the church. And then in this strange twist of events, and only God really knows why and how this happened, uh, but God decided to recruit Saul of Tarsus, this guy who was persecuting the church to become the person who would take the message of Jesus to into the entire known Gentile world and eventually to the Roman Empire. It's because of Saul, the church persecutor, that we even know of Jesus over here in the West today. And it's a remarkable turn in his story. He was the one. And why God chose him, we'll never know. He seems like the least likely person. But just as we're like out of the gate today, here's one thing that that means for you and it means for me. It means that regardless of what you've done, regardless of where you've been, regardless of what you've done to other people, the kingdom of God is still open to you, right? Because if you and I, I would be willing to bet if we stacked up our worst days next to the apostle Paul, he would still look worse than us. Like, like if we stacked up our record against his record, uh, we would still think he was the worst guy. And yet that is the very guy God chose to spread the message further than it had gone to that point and in many ways further than it had ever gone before. And so it's this remarkable picture of how God invites anyone and everyone, regardless of what's in your past and regardless of even what you're carrying right now in this moment, right? Paul is this example that the story's not done as long as you're still living and God is still moving, that, that he can do incredible things and turn stories around. And, and so the Apostle Paul, he plays this extraordinary role in the story of the Bible. And so we have to talk about him as we wrap things up today. And in fact, I want to talk through three things that the Apostle Paul did uh, that really make him a primary character in the story 
of the Bible, even though he's mentioned throughout the Bible, but he's not like the main character of the Bible, he's a huge influence in why we have the Bible today. And so there's three things we're going to talk through as we wrap things up today. And to begin with, uh, the first thing the Apostle Paul did is he wrote some of it. He actually wrote some of the Bible as he was planting churches after he had his conversion moment and was going around the Mediterranean Rim. uh, Paul would plant churches, stay with them for a season, and then go to a new community to plant another church. And, And then as a good pastor, he would write letters back and correspondence back to check in on the people in the churches that he had planted over time. And we don't know how many letters Paul wrote throughout his time in ministry, but there are 13 of Paul's letters that survived antiquity. That actually made it to our present day. And these letters uh, eventually were copied and were circulated so much that over time they themselves became considered scripture too. They became a part of what we know as the Bible. But what's important for us to know about Paul and Paul's writings is that when Paul was writing these letters, he wasn't writing the Bible. Like Paul, Paul would have no concept of what we meant by writing the Bible. And, and nobody in that world would have had the Bible as we know it in mind in those moments. Because what Paul was doing is he was writing to friends. He was writing letters to Christian communities that he had connections with. And he was just speaking into specific situations along the way. He was writing to friends and other Christians throughout different areas. And, and so sometimes I think we're tempted to think that Paul so, sat down one day and he's like, I'm going to write the book of Romans. But that's not what Paul was doing in that moment. Paul was writing a letter to the church in Rome. And eventually it became passed around and so revered that it became a part of our Christian scripture. When he wrote the book of Timothy, Paul was writing to Timothy, the young church planter that he was bringing under his wing. He wrote to his friend Titus. Uh, Paul was not writing the Bible when he was writing the Bible. He was writing to actual people in actual history. And so Paul wrote some of these letters, and it's amazing that those texts were preserved and circulated and that we still have them to this day. But the second thing, where we're going to camp out and spend uh, a little bit of time here today, the second thing that the Apostle Paul did is Paul actually explains the relationship between parts of the Bible. Paul helps explain the relationship. Like, in fact, if you're here and you've ever gotten confused about how the Old Testament and the New Testament work together because they're all bound together in that same book known as the Bible. But, but if you read through it, maybe you're like me and, and the character of God has seemed dramatically different along the way. If you read through the Old Testament, it seems like God's kind of cool at the beginning, <laughs> like creation, that seems good, and blessing, that's awesome. And then as it goes on, it seems like the text gets more and more violent and God seems more and more angry and there's all this warring happening and violence. And it seems like this doesn't seem that great, like, overall. And and then if you read all the way through it and you get to the New Testament, it's almost like there's this shift in voice or this shift in posture where suddenly Jesus is on the scene and it's all peace and love and sandals all the time, right? And so it's like, it's confusing to try and figure out, like, why does the Bible seem to say one thing in the Old Testament, but then say another thing in the New Testament? Like, is God angry or is God loving? Is God, like, demanding of the people or is God permission granting to the people? Is God like law and ro- locked down? Or is he spirit and moving free? It's confusing to try and reconcile these two things. And so if you've ever been confused about how the Old Testament and the New Testament actually fit together, the Apostle Paul is your guy. Because the Apostle Paul actually explains through some of his letters and through his example how Christians should view and how Christians should use the Old Testament. And Paul is a great guy to do this for us. Because as I said, he was an expert in the law. 
He was an expert in the Old Testament. He was an extraordinary Pharisee. In fact, at one point in one of his letters, he kind of brags about how good of a Pharisee he was. He's like, I know the law inside and out. I know the Jewish scriptures. And and the extraordinary thing, again, about Paul's story is he pivots in a single afternoon, right? Paul goes from the guy who reads the Jewish scriptures through a Jewish lens and who is persecuting this emerging weird sect called the Way, known as the early church, in the one afternoon, He goes from law-abiding Pharisee who is out to stop the church to being a Jesus follower. He starts to spread the church in a radically new way. And the Apostle Paul, along the way, had extraordinary, extraordinary clarity about the relationship between the Jewish scriptures and what would eventually be called the New Testament. And and so I think if Paul uh, had actually been the guy who gave us our first Bible, Like if the Apostle Paul was somehow here and he was the one handing you your first Bible, I think there's two instructions he might have given to us as we were handed it. And they're instructions, to be honest, that might feel a little tension-filled. They're instructions that are rarely given and it's a perspective that's rarely explained because as we've said throughout the series, many of us were handed Bibles and we were told it's all true, read it and do what it says good luck. And that's about it. Like it's sacred. You should read it and you should follow it. And then we start reading about like this Jewish history and it's really confusing. Like how do I do that? What does that look like? And is God angry? Is he not? Again, there's all that confusion. So I think if Paul had given us our first Bible first, he might have said this, that we should read the Old Testament for inspiration and for motivation, but not for application. This is really important. And like I said, it might be, uh, it's kind of delicate, like it it might be tension-filled to really engage with that because there's a lot of stuff. I mean, we we put the Ten Commandments on the courthouse lawn and all that stuff. Like there's a lot that's revered in the Old Testament, but I think if Paul were writing to us, he would say that we should read the Old Testament. Jesus' followers should engage with the Old Testament for inspiration and for motivation, but not for application. And and he actually spells this out. I'm not going to read it all to you, but if you want to do extra credit or just check it out, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, he talks about this relationship, and he does it again in chapter 10, verse 11. Uh, But essentially, what Paul is saying, his perspective, his foundation that he understands is that the entire Jewish Bible, what eventually became known as the Old Testament, is organized around an arrangement between God and ancient Israel. The entire thing, I mean, the testament, Again, that's a Latin word that we got testament from. Earlier, it was called the Old Covenant. And a covenant was like a contractual relationship that God had specifically with the people of Israel. And so what the Apostle Paul would know is that the Old Testament, as we know it, is all about and based on that Old Covenant, that Old Contract. But he also knows, because of his encounter with Jesus, because of his understanding of what Jesus was doing, he knows that that Old Arrangement was actually replaced with a new one, with a better one, a new covenant, or again, to use the Latin as we know it, a new testament. God moving in a new way and relating to us in a new way. And that sounds radical, right? It's like borderline, like, are you saying we can cut out the first half? Like, what does that mean? But here's the other radical thing. This concept is actually explained and spelled out in our Bible, There is actually text uh, in the book of Hebrews that talks about uh, this relationship. And essentially the author uh, of the book of Hebrews was writing to a Jewish audience, a a Jewish Christian audience, and was talking about what God had been up to, what was happening. He talked about how the old covenant served its purpose, the law and the prophets served its purpose to move the story forward to the point of Jesus. And then Jesus introduced a new covenant. And in Hebrews chapter eight, 
the author actually refers to uh, something that the prophet Jeremiah said about how God is going to move in a new way. And immediately after quoting the prophet Jeremiah, the author of this letter says this. It says that God, by calling this covenant new, the new thing that God had done through Jesus, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. And they said it, not me, right? Like he says, by calling this covenant new, that there's this new relationship that we can have with God, then he's made the first one, the old covenant, old and obsolete, and that we're not actually bound to that covenant anymore. And before you feel like I'm giving you a get out of jail free card today, the new covenant is radically simple, but in some ways radically more demanding of each of us as well. And so Thing number one, I think Paul would say, it's like, hey, here's the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. Read it for inspiration, read it for motivation, but don't pull your application for how you actually live your life from there. Rather, I think Paul's second piece of advice to us would be to take our application cue from Jesus' new covenant command. When it comes to knowing how to live your life and how to manage your money, and how to have a thriving marriage, and how to have good relationships, and be a good community member, and and actually apply the things that we believe in our lives. Paul would say we should take our cue from Jesus's new covenant command, which begs the question, what was Jesus's new covenant command? Well, it's actually something that Jesus said to his followers uh, right around the time that he had that first communion moment that we were talking about earlier. He gathered his followers together for their last meal together, And as they were sitting there together, Jesus made this statement to them, and he said, there's a new law that I have to give to you, which the people in the moment would have thought, only God can give laws, but then they probably also remembered that only God can heal people and perform a bunch of the other miracles that Jesus had already done in their presence, so they're like, okay, Jesus, what's the new law? And Jesus said, love one another, and the people in the moment would have thought that's not new, but Jesus wasn't done yet, because Jesus goes on and he offers this one new command. He says, this is the one command that sums up all of the other commands that you already have heard of, and his, con- his command was, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And he tagged on that by this, everyone will know that you're my follower. If you love one another the way that God through Christ loves you, that is Jesus's one new covenant command. And it's radical when you really think of it in that context, when you really understand that Jesus is saying, hey, this is what God calls us to do. Love one another the way God through Christ loves you. And so what that means is the Apostle Paul, as he's writing these letters, as he's explaining things, Paul actually never gives new commands. All of Paul's writings are application of Jesus's one new covenant command to love one another the way that Jesus loves us. And if you don't believe me yet, I'm gonna run through and give you some rapid fire examples. Uh, In the letter to the church at Philippi, Paul writes this. He says, in your relationships with one another, and so they're having some issues in their relationships, right? And Paul the pastor is writing, hey, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. See, Paul doesn't say, have the same mindset as the law and the prophets instruct you to have. He doesn't say, go back to the law and and read about how you're supposed to behave, but rather, Paul says, for Jesus' followers, in your relationships with one another, the example and the way that you apply that example is in the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who was God, but didn't ever pull the God card, 
right? He never went into a restaurant and was like, hey, Jesus, party of one, like, get out of my way. He never did that. Rather, he carried himself in humility all the time. And so for Paul, he's saying, we take our application cue from Jesus, who lived a life of humility. We should have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. In the letter to the church at Ephesus, he says this, submit to one another because the law says so. No, he says submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That the thing that should motivate the way that we live our lives is our reverence for Jesus and the way that he loved us. As Jesus loved us, we should love one another. That is the one application point that can be applied across every aspect of our lives. So we submit to one another, not because it's what the law says, not because it's recorded in the Jewish scriptures, but it's out of our reverence for Jesus. Again, he goes on and he says, be kind and compassionate to one another elsewhere in the letters to the church at Ephesus, forgiving each other because you deserve it. No, he says forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. And this is clarifying, although demanding, because sometimes you can take verses from the Old Testament that feel like if-then kind of statements, like if they say they're sorry, then forgive them. That's not what Paul says Christians do. Paul says Christians forgive each other just as Jesus forgave us, that we take our cue from his one command to love one another as he loves us. And one more, in case you're not convinced yet, uh, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, that you're not your own, you were bought at a price. So therefore, honor God with your bodies. He doesn't say honor God with your bodies out of fear of punishment. He doesn't say honor God with your bodies out of fear of the consequences, although there certainly is a piece of the puzzle. But the motivation for Jesus' followers is to honor God because we recognize we were bought with a price. We were loved by Jesus. And so the Old Testament for Jesus' followers, it provides inspiration it provides backstory so we understand how we got to the place that we're at, but we are called to take our cue from what God has done for me and you. That our cue is supposed to be living out uh, the kind of love that God showed in Christ to us. And, and before we go on, can you imagine if we got that right? Like, there's no the Bible yet still, but can you imagine if we just did that in our marriages, if we loved one another way that God through Christ loved us? If we were like workers or, or we showed up and, and treated one another the way that God through Christ loves us, I, I don't know that we would even have needed of the Bible because as Jesus himself said, they would know we were his followers if we actually did that. So this is so important and that's why I wanted to spend a lot of time on it today. But Paul does one third thing and this third thing, we're gonna get a little bit more academic for just a second, uh, but it's so significant about Paul and about how we eventually get the Bible because the third thing that Paul does is Paul authenticates the most important event recorded in the Bible. Paul authenticates the most important event because remember what we said at the very beginning, that the story of the Bible begins with the resurrection. And if there was no resurrection, then there would be no Bible. Right? If there was no resurrection, there would be no the Bible for us to look at. And, and maybe for you, uh, if you went to college or maybe you've studied this on your own, maybe you heard along the way, there's a theory that has emerged and was taught quite a bit, a, a lot of times in college circles, uh, that actually the writings of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, the Gospels, that these writings weren't actually first century eyewitness accounts, but that they were written hundreds of years later by the Christian community, kind of trying to justify or, or make sense 
of uh, their faith and that the community created this story later, including the resurrection, and then applied it back. Like they acted like it was history, but they created it years and years later. And so it was this perspective that kind of discredited scripture and discredited the story of Jesus. And maybe you've heard that before, but Paul is the sticking point to that theory. Because specifically, Paul's letter to the Corinthian believers, the first Corinthians as we know it, it in and of itself is indisputable evidence that Jesus' resurrection was accepted as fact immediately, not eventually. It's indisputable evidence that Jesus' resurrection was accepted as a fact immediately after it happened. And I'm going to walk you through why we know that and why it's important for us as we wrap things up today. Uh, So nobody disputes that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians around the year A.D. 55, Scholars agree that's the time that Paul wrote this letter, and so this is going to feel a little bit like school, but I've got a timeline for you. So 1 Corinthians happened in AD 55, and he wrote that letter to a church that he himself says he planted three years earlier. So that takes us to 52. Okay, and and he did that after he had visited with Jesus' apostles in Jerusalem in the year AD 49 and the year 40. So that's when he went and he visited the apostles and he told them about his encounter with Jesus and they kind of asked him some questions and eventually verified like, wow, I think this is real. And they sent him off on his way. That happened around 49 and 40. That was only three years after Paul's conversion in 37, or some scholars say maybe it was more like 35, but kind of in that range. And what that means is that was only three or five years after the resurrection of Jesus around AD 33. And in this letter, written in the year 55, Paul writes and he explains that there are hundreds of people in Jerusalem who saw Jesus. And again, it's showing us that belief in the resurrection happened immediately, not eventually. It wasn't this thing that they added on down the road, but it was actually at the core at the very beginning. And here's how Paul says it in his own words in the letter to the Corinthian church. He says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. He's writing this in 55, and he's saying, I want to remind you of what I preached to you three years earlier in 52. For what I received from the apostles, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's another name for Peter, and then to the twelve. And if they had asked, like, hey, how how do you know that Jesus showed up to Peter? He would say, he told me because he went and he visited the apostles. He would say, eyewitnesses told me about it. And it gets better than that because Paul keeps writing and he says, after that, Jesus appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. That's so significant. Like Paul is writing this letter in 55 AD and he's essentially saying like, hey, there's 500 people around the region of Jerusalem who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And if you don't believe me, they're still alive. Go buy a boat ticket and go ask them. Like he's, he's that confident. And so he's saying like this event happened. It happened in recent history and people believed it instantly, not eventually. And I love, this is a sidebar, but I love the confidence of the first century Christians as he says that some of them are still living, but some have fallen asleep because the first century church was so bold in their faith and was so brave that they viewed death itself as simply falling asleep because people who fall asleep wake up. And they had that kind of faith that they didn't even fear 
death, but they made it as light and as simple as falling asleep. And then Paul writes that then Jesus appeared to James, and James is another important figure in the story, because you know who James was? James was the brother of Jesus, and when Jesus walked this earth and did his ministry, James did not follow Jesus. James did not believe his brother was his savior until after the resurrection, and then James went on, and James became a leader in the first century church, and the joke that I love to make is, what would your brother have to do to you to convince you that he was your Lord, (laughs) right? James was convinced. James was convinced, and he became this leader in the church, and uh, then Paul goes on, and again, we're about to wrap up, but Paul goes on, and he recites this thing that scholars are convinced is a pre-existing creed, and if you don't know what a creed is, it's not the band, but like a creed is this phrase that people use to try and uh, remember and accurately share their beliefs, especially as it relates to religious beliefs. Like nursery rhymes are kind of like creeds just for general morals. Uh, creeds are things that we used to remember. Like that song at the beginning, the B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. That's kind of like a creed. And, and so scholars agree that there was this carefully crafted statement that Paul refers to in his letter in 55 A.D., It says this, Christ died for our sins and was buried, and he rose from the dead and was seen. Christ died for our sins and was buried, and he rose from the dead and was seen. And what that means is that the resurrection at that point was so widely accepted that it had already been summarized and wrapped up in a creed to pass on to others. And here's why this is so significant. Here's why Paul is so significant in this story, because he wrote some of the Bible He explains the relationship between parts of it, and then he authenticates the most important event recorded inside of it. And what happens after Paul is eventually more documents are written, more letters are passed around about the movement of Jesus, and and writers such as James and John and Peter and the author of the letter of Hebrews, they wrote these letters, and these documents were passed around and they were considered sacred, not because they were the Bible, but because of the source that they came from, eyewitnesses to the event that launched the movement, eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And they were collected and they were protected. And it takes us until the fourth century before we get to a point where the order changes in Rome and Constantine becomes the emperor. And Constantine does a radically new thing and he makes all religion legal, including Christianity throughout the Roman Empire. And then in this crazy turn of events, the empire that killed Jesus funded the collection of these documents, the law and the prophets, and the documents that documented the life of Jesus, and some of these letters of Paul and James and and Peter, and they collected all these together. And it wasn't until the fourth century that funded by the state that killed Jesus, the first Bible, known as Tabiblia, or as we know it today, the Bible, was collected and put together. And ever since that time, it has shaped Western civilization. It has shaped many of our lives. But here's what's important to remember. It didn't start the movement. The Bible did not create Christianity. If that's like what you're standing on, people will poke holes in that all day. There were some 300 years before there was a Bible to stand on. The Bible did not create Christianity. But rather, Christianity is the result of an event that created a movement that produced texts that were collected and protected and bound eventually into a book that now we can look at and we can learn from and we can 
uh, apply Jesus' one rule from as we go back and we look at the story. But here's the point. If there had been no resurrection, there would be no Bible because the story of Jesus would not have been a story worth telling. But his story was worth telling because it is a story for every single one of us, for every generation. And it is a story with personal implications for all of us. And do you know what those personal implications are? It's the very same thing that Paul wrote in that letter to the first Corinthians, that Christ died for our sins and was buried and he rose from the dead and was seen. And here is the point of this series. It's that the story of the Bible reminds us that the most important question is not, are you at peace with everything in the Bible? The, the most important question is not, can you reconcile everything that's in the Bible or can you make sense of every verse that's in the Bible? But rather, the most important question is, have you found peace with the God who so loved the world that he gave his son that you might have life? Have you been reconciled to the God who loves you enough to have done this event that happened in human history that launched the movement? And if not, friends, the invitation is open to each of us. And I'd love to help you take that next step together. So as we wrap up, let me pray for you and we'll be done. God, I just pray that we could understand how important and how extraordinary it is for us to understand this story that the Bible is not the magic rule book or anything like that, that we can't just pick and choose and apply at will, but rather it's a story that leads us somewhere. And it's a story that's better than we could ever make up. That this story tells the story of how you moved through a group of people and how you moved through the law and how eventually when the time was right, you moved into the neighborhood and you became flesh and blood and you lived among us and God, people saw you. They saw what it was like for you to live life the way life was designed to be lived. And then eventually, it climaxed with you giving yourself up for us that we might have life that's truly life. And so God, for my friends here today, as we've gone through this series, I pray that they wouldn't have just learned some history <laughs> or just learned some interesting information, but that we could have a perspective on the Bible that keeps us from ever weaponizing it, that keeps us from ever picking and choosing and applying the parts that are easy to apply and ignoring the parts of the story that are confusing, but rather that our engagement with the Bible would move us in the way that the Apostle Paul and ultimately Jesus instructed us to, that we could learn to love one another the way that you loved us through Christ. So God, may it be so in our lives. Help us to understand, to look to the Old Testament for motivation and for inspiration, but to look to you and your example for our application of how we should live our lives and help us as a result, to look like Jesus right here in this community, right here in Peru, Indiana, right in this current cultural moment. And God, we pray and we ask all of that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. If you live in or near the Peru, Indiana area, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend gatherings. To find directions, service times, and information about our environments for kids, visit us at storyperu.com.